0: Good morning. My name is Travis Hutchinson. I am one of your interim pastors here. And uh, last time I came before you to preach, uh, I was just about wrecked by, um, by some of the beautiful music that had been offered up to the Lord to assist us in worship before I came up. Uh, this time, uh, my friend Bill praying for my dear sister. Yeah. Um, But what I'm going to tell you this morning, I'm telling you in light of the importance of understanding eternity. Um, So we're going to open by hearing from God's word from the very first line of scripture. Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, confessing to you that we seek after so many things that are not you, and yet, the part of us that is spirit made alive desperately wants more of you and acknowledges that the things of this world are mere substitutes for the whole that we have that can only be filled with you. And so, Father, we pray that by your word and by your spirit this morning, That you would give us more of yourself, that you would increase our faith, that you would give us the incredible gift of being made more into the likeness of your Son. In his name we pray, amen. Um, I'm going to begin this morning just by giving you, I guess, maybe some disclaimers or or how to hear this sermon. Uh, Because... I'm, I'm going to talk about science in this sermon, and so say maybe a few things about that. One is that I actually don't know very much about science. Um, I do have friends who know something about science, and a matter of fact, in um, thinking through some of these things, I have a friend who's a believer and he was an actual NASA scientist, so you know walking through with him. Second thing I want to tell you is that I do not want to give you the impression by at all, that we prove scripture by science, that do not understand that what I'm about to say somehow proves scripture because of what science says. We can illustrate and illuminate scripture by science, but we don't prove scripture by science. That's because science is not infallible. The people who do science are not infallible. And if you look through the history of science, you will understand that there's all kinds of things that we knew absolutely for sure that were absolutely wrong but it can illustrate and illuminate. And the third thing I wanna tell you, because some of this stuff is kind of heady, if what I'm saying doesn't make any sense, it doesn't matter, you can move to the other side of it and cling to what scripture is saying, and it's still, it's just still solid gold, okay? So hopefully the illustration doesn't mess up the message, but I just want you to have it in your mind how we're gonna hear this. Um, And then you may ask the question, why why would we talk about things that are hard to understand? Why would we wrestle with things? Um, Bill has been leading us through a sermon series on the nature of God, the attributes of God. Why would we dive into such kind of like heady things rather than things that are just super simple and easy to understand? And there's really two reasons for it. One is that God himself is ineffable, meaning that you cannot get to the bottom of understanding everything that God is. But because God is ineffable, you can't understand everything, does not mean that he's incomprehensible, meaning that we can understand things about God. And the more we understand the depth of God, even which goes beyond what where we can get, the more our hearts are provoked by his majesty to worship him. So that's one reason why we dive into things that are hard to understand. The second reason is that scripture actually gives these things for our comfort. These are things on the ground that I... because. You know, Bill said, hey, you you want to preach this Sunday? I said, what what do I, what do you want me to preach? He said, dealer's choice, right? Okay. So I am preaching to you what has comforted me and what scripture says should comfort you. That's why we're doing this. Okay. That being said, um, I'm fond of long introductions, but um, so... Young men who were at forge. I'm just wondering. We we made we made these pocket knives at forge. I'm wondering if any of you actually have your pocket knife with you. Are there any young men who have your pocket knife from forge with you? I just. I talked to somebody else. I said, "Do you think they'll bring them?" Somebody thought they would. I don't know because there's only any of you. Yes, you got a pocket knife. All right, so. At, at Forge Camp, we, uh, we, we spent some time, we, we, we made things, we, we learned things. So interesting. We're people, we're like makers, you know? Like, look at this building just for a second. I mean, if you come in this building every week, you probably don't notice what somebody new walks into this building, sees, right? Just look at this ceiling. It it, the way it rises, it actually rises up to emphasize the glory of God. And I get to stare at that beautiful stained glass behind you. It's gorgeous. And in the center, appropriate to the sermon is the alpha and the Omega. God is the alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But the point is that we are creators in all of creation, there's all these creatures, and they, they, some of them kind of make things, but they make them by instinct. Spider doesn't make a, a web out of artistic expression, just makes it out of instinct. That's what they do. But human beings were creators, and that's part of what it means to be in the image of God. And part of what it means to be like fully human and a fully redeemed human is to create wonderful things that glorify God and help others. Genesis 128, fill the earth and subdue it. This is our calling because we are in God's image. But right here in the opening of all of scripture, we have this line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because I was terrified about going to seminary, I found this uh, a Jewish teacher in Chattanooga, because I wanted a head start on Hebrew, because I was really, really scared, and so I had to memorize things. Right for this guy, one of the things I had to memorize is the first line of Genesis: "Bereshit bara Elohim, haShamayim vaEt ha'aretz." In the beginning, right? So Bereshit um, in the beginning. Barah, created, Elohim, God. Barah. It's this wonderful word in scripture, created. And one of the wonderful things about it is it's only used in reference to God. Only God creates in scripture. Human beings... We make, we fashion, we mold, we sculpt, we build. We do all kinds of wonderful things that are mirrors of what God does, which is create. Because every time we do something, every time we build, create, we do something out of stuff that's already there. We take wood or, and we may build a house or we could build an idol we are creators for good or for ill, but we do not create in the same way that God creates because God's creating work happens out of nothing, nothing. Now we, we know this, the hint is there in Genesis 1.1, but we know that that's true from the book of Hebrews. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The theological word for the theological term is create, creatio, ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Science has no way to conceive this. God speaks everything into being out of nothing. There's nothing, in, God is already there in the beginning before there is anything. And then he like speaks everything into being. And you're like, I thought this is about infinity and eternity, and you're talking about creation. All right, so here's where the science is. And I'm, I just wanna apologize in advance for this, okay? So like, one of the things you've heard of, all of us have like heard of this, we don't understand it, is the theory of relativity, right? Heard of this? Theory of relativity, Einstein. What is theory of relativity? Well, it's part of it is the idea that time and space and speed and matter, it's all relative. What does that mean? (laughs) Sorry for this. It means the faster you go, the slower you move through time and the heavier of a gravitational body that you're in, the slower you move through time, which means that we've actually tested this with atomic clocks. If, if your twin is here on the earth and you go up into the air and you fly, you know, thousand miles an hour around the earth, you will have spent less time than your twin did on the earth. It's kind of weird. It's really weird. If you've seen the movie Interstellar, Interstellar actually like plays with some of these ideas that are real scientific ideas. It fudges the math to make the story exciting, but that's a real thing. Now, what does that have to do with anything? What, what that means is that if you don't have space, you can't have time. And if you don't have matter, you don't have space. This is like, if you don't have space, you can't have time. If you don't have matter, you can't have space. What does that mean? It means that when God created matter, he created time. It means that God himself is outside of time. It means that God existed before time existed because God existed before there was anything because he speaks everything into being. It's the actual first bit of information that we get in scripture. This idea that God is eternal is something that's all through scripture. And it's important for us to realize God has no beginning and no end. All of you are immortal. None of you will ever completely die. Your body will die and you will go either to heaven or to hell. And on the last day, your bodies, all of them will be raised. And all of you will either go to the new heavens and the new earth or to the lake of fire. You are immortal, but you had a beginning. God, is, and you experience time, but God is outside of time. He is absolutely eternal. It's in creation accounts. It's uh, all the creation accounts of the ancient world generally follow one of two patterns. Either you have like these... Um, uh, well you have these uh, mommy gods and daddy gods getting together to create the world, being mommies and daddies. you have these these uh, like powerful children like stumbling through the universe, doing horrible things, and then here are the Hebrews, these nomads, these shepherds, people living in tents who give us an understanding that the creator God who dwells in eternity speaks everything into being and this is why people are like how could they come up with it And of course the answer is they didn't come up with it God gave it to them this idea that God dwells outside of time and that he speaks everything into being it's one of the foundations of understanding who God is in Genesis twenty-two, twenty-three, 23, which is almost the last verse in Scripture, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. First and last affirmations in the Bible, almost to God's eternity. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity whose name is holy, I... Now listen, so Isaiah is telling us this is what the one who dwells in eternity says. He's talking about God's eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place. I am above you. Says, but I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. There's something about God's eternity that should comfort us. How? Okay. If at some point you turned me off because I wasn't making sense, probably my fault, not yours, at this point, turn it back on. Okay? God dwells in eternity, he's outside of time and you need to know this, why? Because a God who is outside of time is completely in control. This is one of the foundations for God's sovereignty is that he dwells in eternity. God is not waiting around figuring out how he's going to respond to everything that happens to us. He's not like the perfect responder with the lightning reflexes. I mean, in Romans, when it it says um, all things work for the good, that does not mean that God takes all these bad things and then fixes them behind us as we go. That's not what God does. Um, God, God does not, you know, it's... This is an experience that probably this, uh, this illustration will only work for some of you. But for those of you who've seen a parade, all the people, all the stuff going on, maybe buildings up on either side of you, and here comes one thing at a time. You know, here here's the dancing people, and here's the horses, and... Here's the little kids dressed like clowns and they're all coming through the parade and you're seeing it one by one. That's us in time. We're like seeing the parade come by. God sees the entire parade from up above. He sees the whole thing at once. He exists and can enter in to any point in time because he lives outside of time. And so he can be and he is absolutely in control. Now, I know the problem. And I I cannot remember whether I brought this up. If I brought this up a few weeks ago, i just let you know that this is an experience that for me is a bedrock experience in my life. And so if you hear me preach, maybe I say it half the times I get up here. Okay, sorry. Um, The hard part, right? So we think if God is in control, why do these bad things happen, right? We struggle with that. But once we hit the point where we realize that God is not only in control, but he's infinitely wise and good, the switch just flips. And we go from being angry to being comforted. When I first came into a Presbyterian church, I remember sitting down. I was arguing with this woman in the church, so patient. Is saying, I just can't believe this idea that God is absolutely in control of everything. And she looked at me and she says, once you accept it, you will realize that it is a great comfort. And I watched her after that point go through five miscarriages. Trusting in God the whole way. The eternality of God Is linked to the sovereignty of God. He is completely in control. But not only that. Like we're used to thinking about how God is ever present in space, right? God is, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent, right? Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand will hold me. I remember when I was first a Christian, I actually had a hard time really fully grasping this. And uh, this will come up again, I was Roman Catholic. And so when I wanted to be near God, do you know what I did? Let's take a guess, kids, what do you think I did when I wanted to be near God? I went to a church, right? So thankfully it was back in the day when a lot of Catholic churches, they never locked the door and I'd go in in there because I just felt like I was closer to God if I was in there. But the truth is that God is ever present. There's nowhere that we go that we're outside of God's presence. There's nowhere we can go to escape from his presence because God is ever present but he's not only ever present in space, he's ever present in time. That means that the difficulty that you are going to face next week, next year, when you encounter something difficult, God is already there. He always was there. Also means... When you think about the very difficult thing that happened to you that still pains you, when you think about that thing, God was not only, pre- this is, might be kind of a weird thought, but this is comforting to me. God was not only present with us when that was happening, he's still present with us. He's back there in that still now. Just like he's here with you right now. He's ever present in time. You think back to that time. Oh, that was such a difficult time. It's so painful. Even when I think about it, God is with you in that all of the time through all of time. He is completely ever present with you. Okay. Third, atonement. So like, if you don't already understand this, we are born as sinful creatures. Unlike animals, we are born in rebellion against God. Now, babies, they don't have the ability to rebel, but they have hearts that will rebel. That's who we are. Even covenant children are born needing Jesus. We need God's forgiveness. We need, we need God the cleansing blood of Jesus, which is the only thing that can take care of our sins because there is nothing that we can offer up that will pay for our sins. And you know it. If you have ever tried to make up for your sins, you know that you can't do it. It is a desperate game. Now, the word, one of the words for describing what Christ has done for us is atonement. This idea that his blood and his sacrifice covers all of our sins and restores our relationship with God because he's just covered over the whole thing, done away with it. We're forgiven by the shedding of blood. So I wanna ask you a question. When, well, ask where first. Where did Jesus die? Where did he die? It's not a trick question. Where, where did he die? Oh, you can offer it up. He died on the cross. This is, uh, this is what, what country is this in? Israel, outside of a town named Jerusalem. So he dies on a hill outside of the city on a cross in Jerusalem. Now this death is a sacrificial death. He didn't die because they murdered him. In in the words of Max Lucado, nails don't hold gods to trees. He offered himself as a sacrifice. So if it's a sacrifice, right? A sacrifice, the blood is laid on the altar. Then what temple did his blood get applied to? No one, no one carried his blood into the temple of, in Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews says where his blood was applied. Hebrews chapter nine, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He's talking about the heavenly temple. The temple on earth is a reflection of the temple in heaven. He enters the heavenly temple once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secures you an eternal redemption. Old Testament believers, how are they saved? Saved by keeping all the works of the law? You can't keep all the works of the law. They were never saved by the works of the law. What were they saved by? Author of Hebrews tells us that the law was forms and shadows of what was to come. What are they saved by? The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that Moses trusted in Christ. How did they trust in Christ? They trusted in Christ through trusting in the promises of God. They trusted of Christ in advance, but they didn't wait thousands of years for their sins to be forgiven. Their sins were forgiven then. How could that be? Because Christ placed his blood on the altar then. He placed his blood on the altar in eternity. Therefore, Christ's forgiveness is available to them. Yeah, this means that all of your sins that you have ever committed, if you're a child of God by faith in Christ Jesus, Christ's blood is applied to your sins. You are forgiven of the sins that you have committed. And matter of fact, the forgiveness goes all the way back, bam, to there. But not only that, and this is, This is what I struggled with as a Roman Catholic. And I'm not telling you, I was a believer when I was a Roman Catholic. So don't hear me say that Roman Catholics, I mean a lot, some Roman Catholics aren't believers, but so are some Presbyterians, right? It's not a denomination that saves you. But I'll tell you the misunderstanding what just, ugh. Right? So, all right, What, what color robe am I wearing? What color robe do Catholics, priests wear? White. Why do they wear white robes? Because they believe that they are priests presiding over a sacrifice. And so when they serve the Lord's Supper, they believe Christ is being sacrificed again. When you take the Lord's Supper, you get new grace to forgive the sins that you have committed since the last time that all of your sins were forgiven. I'm wearing a black robe because we are not priests presiding over a sacrifice. This is actually not a robe. It's an academic gown to signify that we are teachers. We are teachers of God's word. That's what we're doing. And so as a teacher of God's word, tell you God's word says that Christ's sacrifice is a once for all sacrifice. His blood has already been applied to the sins that you have yet to commit. He has already forgiven what you have not yet done because he applied his blood in the heavenly temple in eternity as a once for all sacrifice for sin. His eternity is linked to your atonement and your comfort. Your sin is, does not surprise God. He already knows. He's already there forgiving the sin that you don't know yet that you're going to commit. And it seems like crazy because like you're just trying to take the sting out of sin. No, no, that's the blood of Jesus that's forgiving your sin. We don't take the sting out of sin. But what drives sin out of us is not guilt. It's worship. It's worship. So, when we sing about the character of God, we have to know that it's his character which defines the relationship that we have with him. Because he is eternal, your sins are forgiven now and forever. And if you're here and you have not yet cast your cares on him, I just want to say this to you, I'm not here to berate you or anything like that, but I will tell you that I was in the hospital room of a dying friend yesterday. And she is sad that she is going to be leaving her children and her grandchildren. And cancer has eaten up her insides and she has no fear. I have been at the bedsides of people who did not know Jesus who were dying as they were dying and they knew almost nothing but fear because the one thing we know we can't manage is death the eternal redemption that Christ gives us is real And it's our antidote for fear. It's the inspiration for our worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you offer to us an eternal redemption. And Father, we pray that you would give us greater faith and greater understanding and that those who are among us who have not yet trusted in you, that you by your spirit would grant them faith in the name of Christ our King. Amen.